Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My first guest for the morning joins us on the line. Karen Bryant is the CEO of Midsummer Festival, Melbourne's queer cultural festival, which is running from the 19th of January to the 9th of February and recently launched its 2020 program. Karen, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Given that uh, a couple of years ago, marriage equality passed, and I think some people may have thought, ah, queer culture has become so normalised, do we really need a a festival like Midsummer anymore? The answer to that, obviously, is of course we do. The last six to eight months, we've seen the queer community under attack uh, because of kind of... uh, uh, the the discussion around religious freedoms and so forth, there's been a lot of the targeting of the queer community as part of that discussion. Do you think that a festival like Midsummer in, for the, serves a valuable purpose for that reason, if for nothing else? Because it gives a, um, a time to celebrate being queer as opposed to being kind of attacked by the religious right. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you you, put, you talk about it in this way because actually a lot of people actually ask me whether festivals just in general are relevant anymore because there's so much you know noise and so many events and things happening all year round. Um, and my answer always with that is you know that. Um, one of the things that's actually embedded very much in festivals is that we tell stories. And stories are... And tell and share stories. And, and maybe stories that people wouldn't otherwise hear or experience. And for us, um, our stories are... You know, they're the keepers of our history. They're the way we celebrate our present. But they're also the change makers for the future. And I think that that's a really important that those opportunities for artists and communities to develop and showcase and tell their stories and their skills and their incredible talent is absolutely vital. Now, Midsummer is an open access festival like Fringe in that regard that anybody who wants to do a show can register and a work can then be programmed as part of the broader umbrella of Midsummer. But Midsummer Festival also produces work. Tell us about that kind of core part of the festival, which is uh, branded Midsummer Presents. Yeah, absolutely. So a few years ago, we decided that um, we would branch out to be to have a curated program as well as our open access, and neither is more important than the other. They fit really well together. And a lot of that's about having a really balanced program. We found that there were a lot of uh, voices that um, in our communities that actually just weren't being seen and heard. Um, there were a lot of um, potential partners and venues that weren't being involved, and, and we wanted to, you know, I guess roll up our sleeves and actually play a proactive role in the development of queer culture um, in Melbourne, but also nationally. In terms of then the work that is programmed as part of Midsummer Presents, looking at the the program, and people can jump online, www.midsummer.org.au, that notion of educating the community is, is a key part of it. For example, next year there's an in-conversation about ACT UP, the activist group um, that was uh, uh, which the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power uh, is the, what the ACT UP acronym stands for. So there's a conversation about that. There's a teach-in looking at advocacy, for example. How important is it that Midsummer is uh, commemorating and honouring queer history as well as celebrating contemporary queer life? 
Look, we think it's really vital, and we think the two are connected. Um, you know, there's a, our, um, our current and our future are very much embedded often in, in history, and that, that memory and that um, conversation and dialogue um, with our communities now, and in a broader sense, in broader communities, is really important. And one of the things that we've really sought to do is actually make Midsummer an organisation that is actually leading LGBTIQ conversations and cultural conversations in our region of the world so that we can be a place that people can look to, you know, as a, as a destination festival to, to come and participate and listen and, you know, actively engage in conversations um, and, and really look to the future in that way as well. And a, a clear example of that, for example, is, um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do year-round, because we're also a year-round organisation, is cultivate, you know, the, the queer arts culture that's unique to Australia. And so this year we have a series of events which are called Queer Unsettled. They're all individual events, but they are under a common theme. And, and they really look at the fact that um, as queer communities, often the images that we see reflected to us and at us are often um, European or US. And we wanted to actually have a program that really looked at queer perspectives arising from our region of the world, so First Nations, Asia, Pacific, um, and those sorts of abilities for us to take a deep dive into what it might look like um, in regards to queer cultures in our region is something really quite unique and we think quite groundbreaking. Well, certainly uh, if we're talking about urgent conversations that have to be, have, have to be had, the, the fact that Queer Unsettled is exploring themes of colonisation, for example, and it's also ensuring that people who may not often have a voice in, in a mainstream discourse such as Pacific women of colour, uh, uh, their voices are being heard directly, clearly and honestly through this kind of programming. Absolutely, and a lot of those events are really collaborative and you, you have a series of different artists and different voices working together and bouncing off one another um, and, you know, working across some amazing venues that, um, that also really add to that dialogue. And I, I think that, you know, that it provides an opportunity for us to really um, place Midsummer in, in, at the forefront of queer cultures. Now, there's some works that have been programmed that I've heard about and not had a chance to see, one of them being uh, the performance Daddy, which is uh, running from the 4th to 8th of February. It was on as part of Yerimboy Festival this year, and I missed it. Uh, it had a short season, so I'm delighted that's come out. That's uh, Wiradjuri dancer Joel Bray's uh, solo work, exploring daddy issues, amongst other things. Uh, and there's also uh, a queer circus work that's been programmed at Gasworks, which from Cassis Circus up in, uh, in Brisbane which is being presented and one of the reasons I wanted to mention that particular production is because it's at Gasworks and that's one of the hubs uh, that is a key part of Midsummer's programming. You have a, an array of festival hubs across the city so it's not just stuff that's happening in the CBD for example. No, there are things all over the place, and um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Daddy because one of the reasons that we put we um, repeat some works. A lot of Midsummer is about new work, but there is works that we bring back where we we know that they've been really fabulous works and often short seasons, and people have heard about them after they finished and really want to see them. Um, and then we make sure that we engage with venues all over um, to to make sure that people can, um, you know, there, there should be something for everyone, and you know, and hopefully somewhere that they can access really easily. But I also, you know. I'm a really big advocate for people to look at a festival and we're 22 days and go, this is an opportunity for me to take a really unique, you know, choose my own adventure journey um, because 
There is something unique about seeing a series of events that are interconnected over a short period of time and it really does feel like an exploration that's quite personal that you don't necessarily get if you see those spread out over, you know, maybe over a year, for example. Speaking of ensuring that there is work in midsummer for everyone, one of the things we've seen shift uh, in the queer community over the last decade or more uh, is the the rise of the rainbow family. And so as a result of that, midsummer has incorporated programming for uh, for young people, children and families, which has become a key part of the midsummer program. Yeah, it has. It's something we've been doing over the last few years. So we actually identified a range of strategic priority areas, um, both culturally um, identity-focused but also age-specific um, because we found that we weren't necessarily getting families with small children um, or seniors. So we really looked at how we could make sure that, that it was a festival for all of our communities. Young families and diverse families don't often see themselves reflected um, in stories, in television. Um, so we've been working at a few years, but this year is the first time that we actually have a rainbow Families Hub, which is at Melbourne Spiegel Tent. And it's got 16 separate events and they're intergenerational, so they're things for families and also encouraging, you know, grandparents to engage with kids there. Um, I think it's, it's actually one of the things that I'm most excited about to have as a sort of a new element to the festival this year. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Karen Bryant, who's the CEO of Midsummer Festival, the festival itself running from the 19th of January to the 9th of February. And you can check out the full program at www.midsummer.org.au. What about the visual arts component of the festival? Because the performance program gets a lot of love, but there's always a very, very strong visual arts program for Midsummer as well. There is. It's another thing that we've got a long history at, but we always try and make sure that we refresh it each year with some really exciting work. Um, but it's also very much linked to the rest of the program. Um, we, a lot of people might not know, but we run um, the Midsummer and Australia Post Arts Prize, which is sort of the the queer um, survey visual arts competition through the year um, and there's a finalist exhibition for that um, but we also um, I've seen a, a sort of rough cut in terms of sort of digital film visual arts um, as part of Queer Unsettled there's an event called The Sky After Rain which tells true stories of queer Iranian um, uh, refugees and you know I mean that, that story of the fact that some people who have come to this country from those um, countries still very much are, are haunted and a big part of their identity is living in cultures where it was illegal and their lives might be at risk um, and there's this beautiful film um, in the sky after rain that, that actually brought me to tears when I saw the, the rough cut um, and I think you know you see so much and um, in, in this job and when you see something like that and you instantly have the, the you know the tears spring up in your eyes you realize that you know what you're doing is really important um, there's also a series of, um, of films that have actually been created by trans and gender non-conforming young people that have been online they've been viewed hundreds of times but it's an opportunity at Arts Centre Melbourne um, it's a, a St Martin's project with minus 18 called Escape Velocity um, we are who we are and I think that's a really exciting opportunity for people to to see those voices on film um, and Black Dot Gallery which is Australia's leading contemporary indigenous run art gallery is also doing an amazing uh, multidisciplinary exhibition a site for sore eyes and um, we've been working sort of very much in that First Nations space um, now for a number of years and it's a you know a site for for the mob to see themselves and to see each other um, in a really interesting way so you know there are so many um, 
uh, I guess, diverse art forms and experiences across the festival that we hope people will engage with. One of the ones that's caught my eye is presented by Hobson's Bay Library, so uh, celebrating uh, the LGBTIQ plus community over in the western suburbs and documenting uh, that community from the 70s onwards, so from uh, 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 the gay skate events uh, the, the, and the, the, the changes in uh, representation, acceptance from the 70s through to today. So that should be a fascinating exhibition for people to go and explore and that's presented in partnership with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archive. So there's an opportunity for various community groups as in the queer community to come together as part of Midsummer. There's an opportunity for theatre companies, independent companies and indeed emerging playwrights to present their work as well. Yeah, absolutely. We we have a partnership with Gasworks, um, and it's uh, it's been running for a few years. But it's been renamed this year, Queer Playwriting Award Showcase with Gasworks Arts Park, which is um, Gasworks invest in emerging queer Australian writers. It's really about that next generation. But as audiences, you can come along and see fifteen minutes excerpts of you know the four finalists, um, and the scripts are actually really fresh, really exciting. Um, there's also uh, another work in the program, um, which actually is uh, a writer from a playwright who was part of uh, one of our mentorship programs. So through the year we run a series of mentorship programs and we ran one um, uh, for members of our community who also live with disability um, and we called that Pathways. And um, one of the amazing writers um, from that program, Christopher Bryant, um, is actually um, part of or is the writer of New Balance, which is running on the 4th to the 8th of February, um, which really has a whole of woven interactive stories um, which really share with us the intimacy and I guess the universality of uh, the queer experience growing up. From uh, queer stand-up comedy to contemporary classical music to visual arts to film and more, the Midsummer Festival 2020 uh, is a, a broad showcase of queer culture running, as I said, from the 19th of January to the 9th of February. More info at www.midsummer.org.au. Next year, we'll be diving into the program in detail and uh, talking to a range of guest artists uh, presenting work at Midsummer. Right now, though, I've been chatting with Midsummer CEO Karen Bryant, who's given us an, an overview of the program. Karen, thank you so much for joining us at Triple R. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Sunday, the 1st of December, was World AIDS Day, uh, which uh, was excellent timing uh, and deliberately so for the opening of a new exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria called... uh, Keith Herring, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Crossing Lines. Uh, Keith Herring uh, died of uh, an AIDS-related illness. Uh, and uh, both of them were uh, kind of street artists who then crossed over into the kind of into commercial art success to uh, one degree or another. Joining us to tell us more, NGV curator Pip Wallace. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Richard. So... Why pair these two artists together? Is it is it their practice that connects them? Is it their politics that, that connects them? Their personal lives or more? It's all of those things. Um, and I think uh, what you do by pairing two artists together is really unpack 
those contextual things that you mentioned, like the politics of the time or the creative community that we know about in the 1980s downtown scene in New York being such a crucible. And so um, while the exhibition gives us the chance to kind of delve into Haring and Basquiat's practice separately, it also illuminates a whole lot of kind of crossing lines, as, as we say in the title. Now, both of them had remarkably short careers, unfortunately. Yeah, and I guess um, the kind of blazing star factor is a reason that they've been so mythologised. Um, they both died um, within the kind of first 10 years of their practice, um, Haring dying, as you said, in uh, of AIDS-related illness um, and Basquiat um, dying, unfortunately, at 27 of a drug overdose. Um, and so both of them kind of having this sense of being um, taken from us before their time um, and... Uh, in a sense, their work has become reified because of this. Um, but what the exhibition tries to do is to show that apart from the kind of very recognisable, uh, iconic imagery that many of us associate with Haring and Basquiat, their practices encompassed a whole range of other um, mediums and outputs. Um, and so we get a sense of the kind of fuller picture through this exhibition. Now, you've mentioned the, the kind of blazing star factor that's related to the mythology around these two artists. Would that same uh, mythologising have happened if they were women? Ah, great question. Yeah, I think there are blazing stars of the era. You think about Kathy Acker and, and her um, impact in a similar time and, and how she's now become a kind of cult figure in um, literature. But I think you're right to question it. Um, and certainly uh, the kind of moody, masculine um, artist genius that Basquiat fulfilled as an archetype, uh, I think had a big impact. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, one of the things that fascinates me about uh, Keith Haring's work is some of it is here in Melbourne, the, uh, the, the huge mural that he painted in Collingwood uh, on the, the wall of the then uh, kind of Collingwood Technical College, which is now where Circus Oz are based and the, the Collingwood Arts Precinct is in development. So people may be familiar with that. There's also a, a piece of his work on a, uh, a, a fence in Fitzroy, which you can I, – I like taking international kind of visitors to if they know much about the art world. I'm just like, we'll go for a casual stroll around Fitzroy. Oh, look, there's a Keith Haring work. <laughs> so people may be familiar with his work. Uh, and currently the NGV water wall has been redecorated with a, a recreation of one of his works as well. But talk to us. Talk to us about kind of Keith Haring and the his symbology, his mythology. Mm. The because he was a street artist originally. Mm. Yeah, you're right. He came to Australia in 1984 um, as a guest of the Centre for Contemporary Art, uh, which at the time didn't have a building of its own. Um, and so he was invited to do these public uh, mural projects, like the, the Collingwood Wall, um, like the NGV Water Wall, um, and they really speak to his interest in accessing a maximum number of uh, viewers for his work. I mean, that was really at the core of his practice. Um, and it's why he began by working in the New York subway with his really iconic subway drawing series, um, which we feature a few pieces in the exhibition. Um, these were a series of 
around 10,000 works that he completed over a number of years, moving really quickly through the subway um, in New York, using the black paper that was covering advertising hoardings when they weren't being used. Um, and he would take a piece of white chalk and quickly sketch um, an image or words that are now recognised um, for his kind of very specific visual language and symbols. And the reason he was using these public spaces is because he really felt that um, his purpose as an artist was to speak to the most general audience possible. Um, and so he really was more interested in working on the streets than in the, in the galleries. So it's fitting that Melbourne has these great representations of that um, uh, real public access aspect of his work. Now, when uh, Herring originally created a work, a, uh, a, a work on the water wall, and that's a slightly difficult sentence mm. to say, I need more coffee, um, uh, the original work on the water wall was vandalised. Somebody threw a rock through the window. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was only about a week or two after it was completed, sadly, and so the water wall mural in its original form didn't last as long as we might have hoped. Um, it was taken down because of the damage. Um, so it's been a really special uh, and exciting opportunity to recreate a kind of contemporary um, uh, version of this work and we've worked really closely with the Haring Foundation who um, have helped us to um, kind of finalise the image of the work that has been applied to the water wall now as a vinyl transfer and so the idea is that we're not recreating Haring's line because of course his his painted line was so incredible you know he created the water wall in two days with a scissor lift he'd never worked on glass before he didn't do a design he worked directly with the paint on the surface um, and his line the speed and the directness with which he could paint was so unique to him so we would never want to try and mimic that. But what we have done is to create it as this vinyl transfer that sits in kind of tribute to um, the lost mural. Is it true that it was vandalised because... Uh, I've heard multiple kind of uh, stories around it. One, the suggestion that somebody was shocked that a bastion of high art like the NGV should be graffitied and should be celebrating a graffiti art. So, so somebody went, oh, contemporary art, whack, and, mm. and uh, kind of piffed a, uh, a rock at it. Somebody else has said that uh, it may have been because he was an openly gay artist with HIV. Somebody else has suggested that because he depicted a woman giving birth in the mural that somebody took offence to that. Why do you think it was smashed? Was it perhaps a combination of all three? Possibly. It's it's never been um, confirmed what the reason was um, and it's not been confirmed who did it and so we might never know. But I think um, all of those issues that you point to uh, demonstrate why Haring was controversial in Australia in 1984, but also why he made such an impact and has become such an icon for graffiti art, for um, the queer arts community, um, for uh, using the street as an, a more egalitarian artistic platform. Um, so it really, uh, I think, goes to the heart of not only the water wall, but the exhibition as a whole, that those issues that made Basquiat and Haring so controversial at the time and almost outsiders in some sense in the art world is exactly why, of course, today we um, recognise their impact. Well, let's talk more about Basquiat. He, again, started out as a, as a street artist and a graffiti artist, working kind of as part of a duo, from my understanding. Uh, and then as he became uh, 
kind of more popularised. Uh, his work remained quite uh, political, socially conscious, uh, exploring racial prejudice, for example, through his artwork. For people who aren't as familiar with uh Basquiat, perhaps. Tell us a little bit more about him and his work. Sure, yeah. Basquiat was born in New York um, to a uh, Haitian and Puerto Rican family um, and grew up um, going to the art museums of New York, particularly the Met, where he was really struck by the various cultural um, visual languages that he saw there. Um, and you see these influences coming out in his practice as he matured as an artist. You're right, he started out um, making graffiti works on the street with his friend Al Diaz. They met at high school uh, and they formed the duo um, working under the name Samo, S-A-M-O, copyright symbol, um, which um, was really a kind of um, poetic uh, text-based practice where they would use the walls of New York to um, make political, poetic, absurd, humorous statements um, and these are, can be interpreted through kind of class, race, um, various frameworks to see the beginning of Basquiat's really political um, motivation that we, that we see continued throughout his work. He was not a political artist in the way that Haring was. Haring was invested in things like awareness raising, fundraising, protest. Um, a lot of his uh, efforts went towards creating posters and the like for the causes he was committed to, but Basquiat's work was um, kind of political in its um, inherent messaging. So um, his father talked about the way that Basquiat didn't need to kind of vocalise his politics, um, but he had it in his work. It was just there in the imagery. So in the exhibition, we have works that deal directly with um, issues like police brutality, with um, a work called The Irony of the Negro Policeman, um, and issues of um, racism in the South African apartheid, which was, of course, a very important issue and live issue at the time. Um, both artists addressing these issues, but in very different ways. And you mentioned the fact that uh, text played a, a key part in Basquiat's early work, and that was something he continued through his practice, uh, the use of text, the use of symbology, uh, the, the I guess the kind of logos and diagrams and maps, are all, a kind of layering and uh, fascinating work to try and unpick in some ways. It is absolutely never-ending, the process of unpicking a Basquiat, and it's been so fascinating to um, look closely at these works that are just layer upon layer of reference and meaning. Um, his brain really worked like a vacuum. You know, he was just sucking up everything around him constantly and then um, kind of processing it in various ways. And one of my favourite parts of the exhibition is the kind of smaller, quieter aspect, which is the notebooks and the diaries, where you see um, both Haring and Basquiat the importance of language and, and the influence of people like Burroughs and the concrete poetry that had preceded them. Um, and so for Basquiat, you have things as diverse as advertising slogans, lyrics of songs, cartoon um, characters, uh, things like Grey's Anatomy, which plays a huge role in his works, this kind of reference to not only Western art history but the art history of different cultures, um, his recognition of himself as, a, as an African-American man in, in America in the 80s and the kind of cultural complexity that that brought, all of these things being kind of synthesised into these kind of overwhelming surfaces of word, image, texture in his paintings. Why do you think the skull motif was so important to Basquiat? Because that's something that crops up again and again in his work. Mm. 
Well, I mean, traditionally, if you think of the skull in painting, it's a reference to our mortality and the history of kind of, say, Dutch still life painting. But of course, Basquiat was looking also at things like African cave paintings. We see some very specific um, copying of African cave paintings from either books or artworks he was looking at at the time in his work. Um, and also, as I mentioned, Gray's Anatomy, which he was gifted that that seminal American uh, medical textbook by his mother when he was a child um, and it would go on to be kind of um, quoted in his practice for the rest of his life and so the things like the skull or the x-ray image of the body comes from all of these sources. The exhibition Keith Herring and uh, sorry Keith Herring Jean-Michel Basquiat Crossing Lines is on now until the 13th of April at NGV International 180 St Kilda Road in Melbourne. It's open daily from 10am to 5pm. There is an admission fee. So if you jump online ngv.melbourne you can find out more about uh, purchasing tickets for that. And I imagine Pip that there's also quite a range of public programs being presented as well, floor talks, conversations, perhaps even film screenings as well. Yeah there's so much going on because as you said there's so much to unpack um like you mentioned, Sunday was World AIDS Day and we did some programming around that and the kind of legacy of, of AIDS and the activism that Haring did. But there's just a, a huge amount coming up through the summer, including the Friday Nights program, which kind of combines the more fun music aspect of their lives in downtown New York with, with some floor talks. So, as I said, jump online, ngv.melbourne, for more information about... Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, crossing lines on until the 13th of April. I've been chatting with NGV curator Pip Wallace. Pip, thanks so much for coming in. A pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Time for us to talk independent theatre. Uh, Patalogue Theatre Company are presenting the Simon Stevens play Punk Rock at 45 Downstairs. It's the Australian premiere of the production uh, and a slightly misleading title. You would not necessarily expect a, a play called Punk Rock to be about, uh, to be set at an exclusive private school. It possibly expect something more gritty and street-based. So let's explore that conundrum. I'm uh, here with Ben Walter, who's the Artistic Director of Patalogue Theatre Company. Ben, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Why did you want to program and present this particular play? Oh, it's a very good question. Um, uh, there are lots of reasons. Um, Simon Stevens is a, a prolific playwright, probably my one of my personal favourite playwrights at the moment. But I think... Um, Predominantly, this play is about seven young people, um, seven students, um, and I couldn't get enough of when I read it uh, the idea that this was a play that that just gave you seven seventeen-year-old characters on stage for the entire time, um, and that being the focus of the story: um, young people, young people's stories, um, and and all all set at the backdrop of this this very sort of um, claustrophobic private school and, and that sort of pressure cooker environment that high school gives you. Um, I was just, yeah, it was addictive. Now, some people will be familiar with uh, other works that Simon Stevens has written, maybe The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, yeah. for example, which uh, was a, an MTC kind of uh, co-pro, I think, last year? Yeah, last early last year, in January, I think it was. Um, but, yeah, it's had successful runs on both the West End and Broadway. Yeah. Um, 
Now, this I read an interview with Stevens in which uh, he was talking about, I guess, the challenge of being an adult writer trying to write teenage <laughs> yeah. characters. Yes. And we all know that slang dates really quickly, yes. for example. And uh, I've certainly I've seen plays and I've read fiction in which it, it, you can, it just feels like the writer does not really know teenagers apart from maybe peering at someone on the tram or the train and <laughs> trying to scribble down a bit of dialogue from time to time. Talk to us about the way Stevens has represented and captured the lives of these young people. Yeah. Is it is it authentic? Totally. I, I think it's absolutely authentic. I think we had a massive um, a body of actors come through and audition for this play and every time we spoke to them, they would always um, talk about just how kind of uh, uh, startlingly accurate that the way he writes teenagers is I think I think in in I think I've read the the same interview he did it there was a piece in the age on the weekend which you can read if you if you look us up but um uh he talks about how Sam Stevens says he he struggles to even remember his own thoughts so if you can't if you can't be accurate about your own life then what's to say you can't write about someone else's so just make stuff up um which I thought was a really beautiful sentiment but um yeah the 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 dialogue the the, the even the references don't feel dated um even though there are some references to pop culture and things um it it feels startlingly accurate and um and really visceral and and throws you right into the uh into the guts of it now it's Amongst other things, one of the, the uh, one of the reviews about the play in the Guardian talks about that one of the things at the heart of the play is the way that fear is spread virally. Mm. Uh, is that a fair? Yeah, you you are. It throws back to your question before about one of the reasons why I sort of chose this play, and I think um, a big one is is you know you have high school, you have the pressures of high school, and with that comes ridicule and bullying and 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 things like that, and I think. Uh, he Simon Stevens writes that with such painful accuracy, um, to a point where, yeah, it's 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 very visceral, very scary in some respects, and um, and yeah, it's it's a play that that ought to be fairly demure, but but with the anxiety that comes with teenagehood and put seven people in a fairly claustrophobic kind of library setting, and yeah, fireworks sort of ensue and and with that can some quite confronting sequences of, of bullying and, and and fear and so yeah absolutely which then raises the i guess the the challenge for your director uh ruby breeze of yes. making sure that uh a play about bullying and mm. uh that features the the kind of ritual humiliation that uh, that high school students heap upon one another making sure that the working environment the, in the rehearsal room is is safe and so that people can manifest those totally. kind of emotions but leave them in the rehearsal yes, room. Yes, absolutely. And and Ruby is a, an exquisite director when it comes to that sort of thing. She puts, coming from an acting background herself, she puts actors really first in their actor safety and things like that really at the forefront of her priorities. And I think the other thing about it is I think we've tried to really move away from treating the play as a play about bullying. What, what it's really about is a bunch of characters in this in this town Stockport which is on the outskirts of Manchester um these characters are bored so as as opposed to it being about bullying I think it's more about boredom and and kind of the way in which teenagers um in some cases horribly amuse themselves by ridicule ridiculing others but yeah Ruby's attitude in in the room is 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 second to none in terms of um uh 
making sure everyone feels safe and comfortable. And it's been it's been an absolute joy for a play that has some dark moments. Um, the room has been a, just a you know, wonderful place to be. Now, the play has had kind of really positive reviews uh, internationally, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be kind of main stage performances, uh, Edinburgh Fringe performances and so forth. It's also had a, a little bit of criticism. I know yeah. uh, one review kind of talks about it uh, effectively reading like a checklist of, um, I don't know, uh, teen angst productions, everything from the History Boys and Lord of the Flies through to Skins and Catcher in the Rye. Sure. I think I think the play certainly draws and references to these sort of pop culture iconographies of, of teenagehood. I think what Simon Stevens does so beautifully is it is a play that is built upon. He he says he says it's people talk about it being built upon stereotypes, and then he corrects it and says I would prefer the phrase be archetypes because these characters are built on archetypes. Teenagehood high school is filled with archetypes. You know you can't escape it. I think what he does so beautifully is build that up as the norm and then totally cut it in two and and subvert it and and really flip it on its head which i think is something that is very difficult to do because when you are writing in archetypes it's very easy to just stay true to it but i think um all of these characters whilst they have the tropes where you'd be like oh yeah i can recognize that from my days in high school what's so excellent about it is that as soon as you feel like you are familiar with what's going on something happens that throws it totally out of the balance and it's interesting that the use of archetypes sometimes comes in for criticism where, whereas I don't recall that kind of criticism being uh, directed at something like the John Hughes film, the breakfast club, for example, which is full of, of, Archetypal characters, the, totally. the nerd, the jock, yes. ex- the goth, etc. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of the characters in punk rock, uh, presumably, whether somebody like me who's fifty-two or somebody <laughs> who comes in who's sixteen or seventeen, we're going to recognise some of those archetypes, some of those characters, and probably something of ourselves in them. Absolutely, I think. I think we um, just last week we were doing costume fittings and stuff, and all of the actors were were thrown way back into their high school days. <laughs> putting the blazers back on and, and um, you know, some recalling more fondly than others, I imagine. But, um, no, I, I think, yeah, it's, we are always going to play, play with archetypes. I think um, it becomes increasingly difficult as these films sort of uh, set precedent to feel as if it's doing something original. But I think what Stevens does with punk rock certainly, um, certainly does that. My guest is Ben Walter, who's the Artistic Director of Padalogue Theatre Company, and we're talking about the production uh, by Padalogue of Punk Rock, which is on at 45 downstairs until the 15th of December. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Padalogue as a company, Ben. You established it in 2017. 2017. There's a wealth of independent theatre companies in yes. Melbourne. <laughs> what makes Padalogue different? Um, I think it's probably one of the reasons, we're, the same similar reasons that we're doing this play. I think... Um, there's lots of independent companies, as you said. Uh, I think uh, independent companies that do young plays about young people are probably a little bit harder to find. I think um, so. If I had to really distill it down to, to what it where it came from, it definitely came from a place of wanting to put young people at the forefront of creating theatre, not just on the stage. Obviously, there are plays about young people, but but in the creative team as well. I mean, in this show, for instance, the we only have one or two people that are over the age of 30 um, in the entire company. And there's about 25, 26, 27 people working in total. Um, and, yeah, it, which is a really, really wonderful thing to do just because typically um, 
theatre has a connotation of being maybe a bit more for the older audience. Um, and certainly you go to places like the Melbourne Theatre Company and the audience demographic is older, you know. It's And that's, that's there's nothing wrong with that at all. But um, I think we definitely came from a place of wanting to really reinvigorate a younger audience in these abrasive sometimes plays and, and exciting and explosive sort of work because theatre doesn't have to be boring and... and and demure. Does that mean that the company has a, a, a built-in lifespan once you stop being young yourself? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to see what we'll have to see what happens. Um, I certainly hope not. I hope. I mean, if I hope that as we continue to build it, new generations come through, and um, and we can keep fostering that kind of uh, enthusiasm for for theatre in the young community. Punk Rock by Simon Stevens, presented by Padalog Theatre Company, is on now at 45 Downstairs. The season runs through until the 15th of December. Uh, if you've not been to 45 Downstairs before, 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne, just off Spring Street. And you can find out more info at www.45downstairs.com or at Patalog Theatre, P-A-T-A-L-O-G, patalogtheatre.com. Uh, where you'll find out more about the company themselves and about the play Punk Rock. I've been talking to the company's artistic director, Ben Walter. Ben, thanks heaps for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.